You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today this is going to be different. So I, I, I really hope you get a lot out of this interview that uh, I have today. And I'd, I'd like to introduce uh, Sarah Bowen, author, animal chaplain. Hey, Sarah, how are you doing? Hey, Chris, doing well. Yeah, I'm, I always say I'm so excited. This is, I'm giddy. How about this? I you am very I'm giddy, giddy to have you on. So yeah, so I think we're going to have a lot of fun today. Yeah, yeah. This is just so different for us in a in a different aspect of animals and wildlife and in a way we view the world. So I, I just I when you reached out to me to come on the podcast and then I was able to get my hands on your book, and I'll just I'll just say it here. And the book title is Sacred Sendoffs, and it's an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. This speaks to me. This speaks to my heart. This speaks to why I do this podcast with Angie. So I just first want to say well done, Sarah. And I'm I'm excited to talk about this today. Great. Thank you. So just to start off, if you could just give our listeners your background, I guess, you know, where you grew up and, and where did your interest in animals and nature begin? So it's really important, Chris, that everyone knows I'm a bit of a troublemaker. (laughs) That's a really important place to start. Born with an incredibly curious mind, you know, a lot of questions. I was a preacher's kid and a teacher's kid. So I was surrounded by books, surrounded by questions and ideas and controversy and really juicy conversations that my parents would get into. And we moved around a lot. So, you know, I have experience in different, I like to say different habitats. Uh, We lived in a small town in upstate New York. I lived not too far from the cornfields in Nebraska. I learned, I lived uh, off the Great Lakes in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I'm now over by the Hudson River uh, in the Catskills. So I've always been kind of surrounded by, uh, you know, I never thought of it as nature, but I've always been surrounded by different animals, Mm. different creatures. And I was really curious about them. We had cats inside, Mm -hmm. of course. And it seemed like everywhere, if there was one consistent thing in my life outside, it was squirrels. Yeah. (laughs) 
and I adore, I adore squirrels. So I meditate with squirrels a lot and they're probably going to come up today as we're talking because I just can't not talk about squirrels. My father had grown up on a farm and he spent some time on the ethics committee at Michigan State University where he was the clergy member. So let's just say I've had a lot to unpack throughout my life of, you know, the use of animals in, in different ways. But to be most precise, my animal chaplaincy career began with roadkill. I have to admit it, and we have to start there, because I was this little kid with, do you remember metal lunchboxes? Back in the day, we had metal lunchboxes. Yes, boxes. I'm old enough to know okay. metal, yes, for sure. <laughs> so I had a Star Wars metal lunchbox, and I would walk home from school. We were still walking home from school those days. And I would find these little chipmunks or squirrels or little beings on the side of the road. Broke my heart. I would open up my little lunchbox, put them inside, take them home, give them a little burial that always ended in, may the force be with you, chipmunk. <laughs> or squirrel or whoever, yes. you know, whoever it was that I was burying that day. And it, you know, it made a lot of sense to me. My my dad spent a lot of time in funeral homes and I didn't bury people. Well, thank God, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. at age six, right? But I, I, I did really, really care about animals even when they were gone. So that's really the context of a lot of the work I do is, you know, how do we revere animals alive and when they pass? What do we do? No, that's, oh my gosh. I, I, see, I was the kid, I would see the roadkill and I would like cry. And it just, you know, always wanted to be a veterinarian or having a career with with helping animals. So I don't know, I, this, this conversation is going to go all over the place. But it really speaks to me because as you were saying that, it's like, well, there's your path in life. You knew as a six-year-old, that that was going to be the path you walked. Because well, sort I, of. Kind sort of, of, okay. Chris, okay. Because Let's carry the when story. you're six and you're bringing home dead critters in your lunchbox, <laughs> your parents don't necessarily see a career path for you there. Right, see, that's true. They see germs and go wash your hands, Sarah. Yeah, um, what's wrong with you? Know, you? And, yeah, yeah. and I would say I made sure to use a stick. I was careful. You, <laughs> so it took a while for me to have the aha moment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of – this can be this can be a career and it's a necessary career because we have you know we have right now it's 57% of the homes worldwide have an animal in them you know what do we what do we do when they're gone and then don't even get us started right on the conservation issues and extinction and what do we do with uh, the bodies of of animals that are used for food all this kind of stuff so it took a while for it to gel let's just put it mm -hmm. that way well, that's good. When was that aha moment for you where you were like, okay, it, it, your your path in spirituality, but also your career as an animal chaplain? Well, I was always getting in trouble for the things I did with animals. When I was a teen, I had left the church. Uh, you know, I just, it, it wasn't working for me. Um, I loved my father, but, you know, church just wasn't really my mm -hmm. thing. Uh, but I did a lot of like spirituality. I loved mindfulness and meditation and forest, what we call now forest bathing and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I just knew that I felt really good when I was connecting with other beings in, in that way, in that kind of wordless way. And so I just did it personally for a long time. 
and a, a lot of weird dots kind of lined up. And I was writing a book on my father's sermons after he died. And I found myself in a seminary and they said, hey, you know, what are you going to do with this? Where are you going to be a minister? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to be a minister. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to have a roadkill ministry. And <laughs> remarkably, the school that I was attending at the time said, fabulous, great endeavor. How can we help? So I think that's an important thing to bring up of when we have these, these kind of passions that seem a little off the wall, that to just keep them in mind and at some point it will become clear mm-hmm. what the path is. And hopefully you've got the right people around you to have that happen. I think it, it's worthwhile bringing it up here early early on in the interview. And, and I think people, because before we started recording, I, I, I shared with you a little bit of my spiritual path with my partner, Pippa, who's right now we're separated because of the, the COVID crisis. And spirituality has been a big part of keeping us strong together. We, we meditate uh, almost daily over Zoom together. We, we do a lot of spiritual work, but it's not religion because when people hear spirituality, they tie it into religion and, and then all of a sudden flags, barriers come up. And, and, and I hope our listeners understand today that, how'd you say it before, interfaith, we're going to, this is a touch upon all faiths and beliefs. Yeah, so I want I want to define spirituality for folks and say that that I think that what spirituality is is a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's pre-verbal. It doesn't have, you know, what how we end up having religions is trying to explain these experiences that we have that that really kind of transcend words. You know, when you're standing on the edge of a cliff and you see a rainbow, or when you have that moment where you're you're working near another species and your eyes connect and you're just like, whoa, something just happened there. What was that? The, this is what we're talking about with spirituality. And also that idea with mindfulness and how can we really be grounded? How can we be in touch with awe and wonder and just how cool the world is. That's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about, spirituality. We're also talking about well-being. We we have a lot of research now on the neuroscience behind what happens when you meditate um, or Mm -hmm. even prayer, you know, to throw Mm -hmm. a a word that's usually considered very religious. There are so many amazing health benefits. So, you know, we're talking about that too. Uh, What we're not going to get into today is more of the the kind of doctrine and right. the religious institution stuff today. We could we could do a whole another podcast on that. Yes. But, I, <laughs> but what I, what we're really looking at, I I do interspecies spirituality, and what we're talking mm-hmm. about is how do we have these moments, these shared moments with other species, where both both parties are kind of getting something out of it that mm-hmm. is is useful in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and I, I you know, and, and again, I want to be very respectful for for people that are religious, and again, this podcast touches upon the entire globe in different countries with different beliefs, so it's it's not, and even reading Sarah's book, it, it's very well explained how animals are viewed by many different religions, and and we're going to talk about that in here. I'm just coming from a from a, a spiritual standpoint when you do pray or you do meditate, 
or you practice your religion wherever you are on the planet, you do connect, I believe, to your higher self. And we were joking about it because, you know, before we got recording, I, I was saying, like, I kind of see myself as a spiritual scientist because I'm always looking for evidence. I've done it with past lives research, near-death experience research, I've just on my own as a hobby. But lately, when you mentioned forest bathing, and, and I wanted to kind of throw this in here, I read a very, very good book, and it was called The Secret Therapy of Trees, Harnessing mm. the... Yeah, have you... Oh, yeah, that was... Yeah. All of that research, scientific in nature, showing the benefits of forest bathing, not just the um, the chemicals that certain trees are giving, giving off, or being near water, running water, the ionophores in the atmosphere that all have physical benefits to us. So... That really struck with me when you said that. It, it does. And I think what's interesting is we now have the methods and the tools and really smart people to figure out why people mm -hmm. have been doing some of these practices for thousands of years. Now we can we can quantify it. We can we can have evidence with it. And we can say, oh, that's what happens when we meditate. Oh, mm -hmm. that's what happens when we chant. Oh, that what happens when we make art. So I think that they're actually these kind of things that we think are opposite or or are in conflict in some way. We're learning how to intertwine them mm -hmm. and understand both sides a little better. Well, it, it, we're going to tie this into animals because I think. Oh yes, immediately. Yes, for sure. <laughs> we are. We are. You know, I don't. I don't want my, my listeners to be like, "What? Where's the animal part?" But it, it's like we we do have connections with our pets and and you know the thousands of people listening to this can attest to that the, their own pets or the zookeepers that I know I've interviewed and talked to and worked with just the connections there there's a spiritual connection so before we get there real quick can you explain what an animal champ chaplain is and how you become one or how you became an animal chaplain sure so the simplest definition is this I support all sentient beings, regardless of their species and regardless of their belief system. Good. So that's it. That's there. There you go in <laughs> yep. the shortest version. Yes, yes, yes. Now, what that means, I do during the day. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of grief work. There's a lot of working with people around animal companion loss. There's a lot of trauma stewardship work with people in conservation, people with environmental work that they do to. Mm -hmm deal with the amount of heartbreak and anguish and stress that comes with these careers. You know, the way that people feel when you're constantly feel like uh, you're not getting where you need to get on your project or, mm -hmm. you know, just, just the heartbreak you were talking about earlier. A lot of advocacy, a lot of writing about animals. I, I have a column in a magazine. I wrote the book Sacred Sendoffs. Uh, I do podcasts like this amazing one with you. <laughs> and then the last thing is we actually formed an interspecies, um, I like to call it a church-ish, mm -hmm. uh, in New York City where we do interspecies spirituality. So everything I do is about animals. No, it, it is. And it just all... Uh, all yep. All of the, all the, the conservation heroes that we've interviewed in the podcast, we've, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 of them in the three years we've been doing this. One that th sticks, I think it was the interview with Mike Veal. He started uh, Global Conservation Force to, to work and train 
uh, poaching units, anti-poaching units in South Africa or all, all across the world now, but started off in South Africa and now they've branched out. I remember him telling a story when he came across a poached rhino and the anguish and the anger and the helplessness that he felt. So I can imagine you coming in there kind of helping, I guess, I guess my question to you would be if I presented that to you and I said, you know, Sarah, I, I just saw this and I'm having a hard time. How do you help comfort them? There's a couple of things. The first thing is to validate that this is real. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a society that tells us that some lives are worth more than other lives. And so we need to validate that what someone is feeling is real. Then we need to allow time to process what's going on, to talk about what's going on, and and to not need to apologize to someone and say, oh, I'm so sorry I'm bereft or I'm crying because I just saw this horrid thing. Mm-hmm. So, so doing that. And then there's some other steps. In the book, I have actually like a three-point plan for working through it. I usually work with people in three or four sessions, but there's some some tips people can use in the book too for for dealing with it. You know, it's really part part science, part spirituality, part anthrozoology, you know, all, all of that. But what we really need to do is feel what we're feeling and not push it away. And then we can work with it. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to ask you is how do you view this, the spiritual connection with our pets, with nature and with wild animals? Like, how do you view that through your lens? So it's connection. It's entangled. It, it, it's absolutely entangled. We, you know, we are nature. We are animals. We like to pretend we're separate. And that's the basis of spirituality a lot is getting back to that unity or that oneness or the connection. Let's use that as a synonym for spirituality, connection. And so that can be with, you know, the cat or the dog in your home. It can be with the squirrel hanging off the tree outside. It can be with an ecosystem. Oh, the work being done right now with mushrooms and mm-hmm. with uh, the roots of trees and trees mm-hmm. communicating like you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I view our connection that, again, that's like a synonym, spirituality and connection. It, it is. And and I got this from your book, too. I, I, I definitely was, was seeing some of the things that I've been really studying the last few years, you know, and it's like, as a scientist, when you break down our molecules, you get, I mean, this is pretty woo woo probably for some people, but just as a scientist, we, you know, we break down our atoms, there's protons, there's neutrons, electrons, the, the colliders are trying to break it down into quarks, big ones, all these things that are beyond my expertise. But then I get into string theory and I try to understand it, but I, I think the gist of it, and, and my listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, is we're just packets of energy. Like we just are the basic, basic building blocks of the universe are just energy. So when I start looking at the universe or our world as everything is energy, it's just we're dense energy that comes together and forms a human being and a lion and, you know, a blue whale and and a mosquito, which, you know, I still don't like mosquitoes, but, you know, again, we're just all energy. So viewing the world through that lens is really, really changed a lot of how I view life. What, you know, how do you see life? I guess when when you look out the window, we're on the same wavelength because, you know, and one of the things that has happened with spirituality in the last, you know, 
I would say 40 years is its intersection with uh, with some of the things you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this idea that energy is never destroyed, it just changes form. Mm-hmm. So when I work with people around death, let's go back to the poached rhino. So the poached rhino's body is no longer imbued with the same kind of energy that it was before. Where did it go? We don't necessarily know, but is there some comfort in knowing perhaps it went somewhere? Mm-hmm. Now there, you know, there's each different uh, philosophical tradition or religion will give you a different kind of story about that or a different idea. But I think you're absolutely right. We're talking about energy transfer. We're talking about something that's happening on a level again that we may not have the words for, but we know it when we feel it. Mm-hmm. Now. One area of the book you talk about, you know, is different religions, different views on animals. And and I mentioned in our correspondence that I wanted to talk about St. Francis of Assisi. Close to my heart, close to my partner Pippa's heart, we, you know, we went to Assisi, walked around Italy where he was walking in the 13th century. Just the energy there... I love him because he's the patron saint of animals. You know, he he's my mother's patron saint like, that she, my whole life grew up talking about St. Francis of Assisi. So to be able to go there and see it, but it's not just, you know, I think in your book, you not just, just not just Christianity, but you also talk about Islam and Buddhism and, and all the others. How do we connect, or I guess, what do religions or theology teach us about animals and, and, our connection to them spiritually? So it depends on the tradition. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a lot of helpful stuff and there's a lot of harmful stuff. And I think what it all shows us is that since, I don't know, day one or perhaps before day one, humans have been trying to figure out how to how to cohabitate, how to live with other species when our needs conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think that St. Francis has been this really great example for people of one of the ways where animals were revered in a tradition that was doing a lot of really awful stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Some, mm-hmm. really, some really cruddy stuff. Yeah. So St. Francis is a great example. There's a story of the Prophet Muhammad in Islam that I love. Uh, cat lovers are going to love this one which is that it was prayer time and he was supposed to get up and go because, you know, the, the signal had gone off, but his cat was on the shirt he needed to wear. So he cut the sleeve off the shirt to let the cat sleep, <laughs> See, put yeah. the shirt on and went yes. to prayer time. Yes, uh, We have another story in, in the Hindu traditions that I love. Uh, it's Spoiler alert, it's going to have a squirrel. Uh, but they say that there was a bridge that was being built by millions of monkeys who were constructing this huge bridge across mountains. And they were bringing big, big boulders. And a tiny little squirrel was really devoted to this idea and and devoted to Lord Rama. So she was putting little pebbles in her mouth and bringing them over to the bridge and setting them down. And the monkeys were like, yeah, no, sorry, squirrel. Uh-uh, you know, we, we've got this. And they tossed the squirrel out. And the squirrel lands in Lord Rama's hand. And, you know, and he says, blessed be the little squirrel. She's doing what she can. And really, you know, kind of chastises the monkeys. So we see this in all these traditions. And they're fun stories. And they also may be useful stories for us just to understand that some of the 
uh, conflicts and some of the challenges we have now today are not new. They show up differently. They present differently, but it's the same stuff. Well, if you even go down to just, if you look at almost, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm trying to rack my brain, any culture on earth that doesn't have a bond with animals in some way, whether, you know, the, even going back to hunter gatherers, we still, you know, there's a lot of oral traditions, I guess, where they revered the animals and would say prayers and thank you, you know, for giving their life to provide sustenance. So do you see that, you know, for it, through your career, you know, culturally speaking, so away from religion, but just, you know, culturally looking at that, the love for animals and our connection with animals is is global, right? I would say it's global, yeah. <laughs> especially since we're animals, just to go back and throw true, that in true. there. True, you're true. Um, you, you touched upon just a moment ago one of my kind of passion points, which is this idea of gratitude bypass um, that that we also find, and and that's kind of a fun thing to dig in to as well. That that we have a lot of beliefs that what we might say about animals um, kind of shores up our behavior towards them. And we see that throughout traditions too. That's kind of a juicy place to dig into. But we see it, we see it everywhere because there's 8.7 million species on earth, at least according to my numbers. You may have some different numbers, but they're big. They're big mm-hmm. numbers. So, so of mm-hmm. course, we see it across all cultures. I think what's, what's fascinating for me and, and what I really started to look at was this idea of death of, you know, what do we see in different cultures and how do they treat animals when they die? Because that's where it gets really very, very different. Well, let's go there. What are some of the some of the ones that, that you'd like to talk about? Because I'm curious, I, I do see, you know, I come across news articles or I think from like India, you know, uh, I've even seen them bury tigers, you know, different, different species across the planet. I've, I've seen different... Uh, practices. So what are some of the ones that that you've come across that are really interesting? Well, I think that, you know, the Egyptians, of course, everyone wants to to talk about, you know, the Egyptians and cats, but what's Mm -hmm. what's really fascinating about what they did, and they were not the first to bury cats and dogs, you know, it goes back much further than that. Uh, In different places, the first puppy uh, we think is in from Bonn, Germany, and the first cat was in Cyprus. But about 2000 BCE, we start to see this Egyptian coffining of different animals, not just burying them in the dirt, but donkeys, gazelles, ducks, uh, baboons, rams, crocodiles, falcons, hyenas, bats, owls, snakes, lizards, scarab beetles, and even a hippo was entombed. So that's kind of kind of fascinating. Of course, they were also raised to be killed as, vic- as victual mummies or, or different things like that. Um, one of the fascinating things to me is what happens to some moose uh, if they die too close to picnic areas in national parks. Uh, they get taken care of with dynamite. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Everyone sit down. They get dynamited. Uh, oh. Because if you think about the logistics of carving up a, a very, very large animal like that yeah. and hiking it out a trail, Mm-hmm. where there's a lot of public folks around. Um, they just wait for the right time. And there's a whole manual on how to use explosives on animals. Oh, oh gosh, that's crazy. I also like um, 
Zoroastrian death rituals and Tibetan sky burials. And that's when we humans let other animals uh, feed on us when we're dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not quite as common where I live in New York. <laughs> no, no, I don't think no. we're throwing I keep telling my husband, yeah, just set me outside and let the birds and squirrels go at me. But he's, he's pretty sure no. Uh, but we... <laughs> You know, so we see these different ways of, of dealing with, you know, the words we use, carcasses, corpses, you know, bodies, whatever. And then in the pet space, of course, or the animal companion space, there's this whole robust industry now. You can you can have a cat or dog become a vinyl record album. Oh, you can wow. shoot them in space. You can have them put in tattoo ink to have a <laughs> tattoo of your dog on your arm. Uh, cremation, burial, burial. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aquamation Mm -hmm. is an interesting process that's a little more environmentally friendly now. I think we're all waking up to the problems of cremation. Yes. And and what that does. So, you know, what what we do in terms of how we take care of, of bodies is one thing. And then the other is do we do rituals? The Buddhists are beautiful about this. You know, Mm -hmm. they'll have a there'll be an an outbreak of um a disease in for chickens or for cows and they'll hold a memorial service, you know, to try to process the pain for the people who've had to take the lives of millions of farmed animals. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so so I think it's endlessly fascinating for those of us who are a little bit morbid and, you know, those <laughs> of us who who may have had a goth phase in their teens, you know, right, and those right, kind right. of things. Well, I mean, death is we're we're all going to go there. I mean, we we can't prevent it, and so, and we do deal with it with our animals, uh, you know, with our pets, or also, like I said, a lot of zookeepers, things like that, uh, deal with that. Yeah. And I did want to mention there's a very good Netflix documentary, Secrets of the Saqqara Tomb, and there was a whole interesting segment of this cat temple, and so they found hundreds of cat mummies. And thousands, 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 yeah, thousands yeah. and thousands of cat mummies. That's it's a great one. There's also an interesting thing that happened when, um, well, with colonialism, of course, mm-hmm. uh, when they did some of these discoveries, they took some of those cat thousands and thousands of cat mummies back as ballast for their ships, oh, God. took them back to England and used them as fertilizer. Oh, God, it's, so, <laughs> it's like the history. I, you know, uh, yeah, history is endlessly fascinating. But, okay, so we think, all right, you know, I don't want my cat to become fertilizer. But on the other hand, there's companies in the Pacific Northwest here in the U.S. that are doing recomposition. Mm-hmm. So you die or your animal dies and you become soil and then you, yeah. you know, you feed trees. I tell my family, just I, I want to become an artificial reef, but they're all, no, no, no. And I'm like, come on, why not? I just, you know. <laughs> we don't want to learn to scuba dive to visit yes. you. Yes. <laughs> just dump me over the side. That's well, fine. but it does, say, it does say a lot about how we revere lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think sure. that when we're able to talk about it, we've had a, you know, there is a death positive movement now, which doesn't mean we want everyone to die. Uh, mm-hmm. It means we want to talk about death, death cafes, different things like that. I'm extending that into other species. Let's talk about it. Let's be mm-hmm. a little more prepared for it. And let's understand, especially like you said, for people who are on the front lines of dealing with animal death every day, let's not try to 
suggests that they need to have no feelings about that or be completely detached from it? Is there a way where we can deal with it uh, in a healthy way? Yeah, I, I, let's let's go there because uh, you know, uh, talking about that, I had to euthanize my dog a couple of years ago. was was very hard, very hard. Obviously, was was crying. I remember we rehabbed when I was living in South Carolina at Clemson, and I was doing wildlife rescue. And we had a squirrel that we couldn't release. And so it became kind of a pseudo pet, which you shouldn't do. But anyways, this was years ago. And it got an abscess and, and we had to euthanize it. And I remember going home, talking to my late brother who passed away just a couple of years after that, but I was bawling on the phone. And I said, we called the squirrel Wally. And I'm like, we got to go euthanize Wally. You know, I just, what is it about that? That, that just is so hard for people dealing with companion animal death. I think the first thing is that that denial that um, that animal lives have value. I think that that's that's at the root of it. So we haven't been prepared and we don't understand it. Another thing that we've learned is that most of our first losses are not human. Mm -hmm. So when I work with people, I say, let's go back, go back to when you were four or five and, you know, your dad flushed the goldfish or the hamster, you know, got out of the, those little plastic wheels or, you know, whatever, what were you told and what happened? And a lot Mm -hmm. of times what we were told was, you know, be more careful, don't worry about it, you know, some sort of platitude and get on with it. So we feel like we're supposed to get on with it, but emotions don't distinguish by species. They just don't. That's our rational brain that sets up hierarchies. Mm -hmm, Our emotions mm -hmm. don't. That's why we fall in love with people sometimes that we're like, how did I fall in love with that guy or that girl? Like, what's what's that about? It's not logical. Mm -hmm. Love is not logical in most cases. And grief is tied to love and tied to caring. And so we try to we try to hit it in some way of um, you know I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm going to task this I'm go- mm-hmm. I'm going to master this, and it's not. So I think being able to acknowledge first, like yeah, I'm sad. I liked Wally the squirrel. Gonna miss yeah, him. I do. And then and then I think there's a redirection that's necessary, which is where do you take that love and care and concern, and where do you put it? Because mm-hmm. right now it has no flow. It has nowhere to go. So where do you put it? And you can you can do ritual for that, or you can you know write about it, or you can channel it into another animal, or you know there's a lot of different ways to rather than deny that caring, to to work with it. Does that make I, sense? It does. It does. And and maybe we dig a little bit more into how you help people grieve, but. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. 
We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I hear this screaming in my head and the listeners want me to ask this. I can, I can hear it now. Do it. Do, do it. Do all dogs go to heaven? You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that line is just screaming in my head. You know, expanding people's belief systems and, and, and I've been doing that uh, the last few years of my life. Uh, on my spiritual journey, but from your standpoint as an animal chaplain and, and the people you've talked to and, and you've really focused in on this, you know, not just do dogs go to heaven, but what happens, which your belief and experience that when an animal dies, where does that essence go? I'm going to give you a revolutionary idea. <laughs> you don't <laughs> an know? Answer, an answer that may surprise you. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah we because where know. does it go for a human? Yeah, we don't know. We don't have that. We don't know. Well, we have some evidence. I, so, I could argue. That's where I go in. I'm like this spiritual scientist where like so near-death experiences we, and stuff. So let's say we don't yeah. know 100% and we have there some theories and we have some ideas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we have some of those that come out of what you're talking about. We have some of those that come out of fil- fil- philosophy or out of religion. We have a lot of ideas, but we don't have certainty. We don't have the same certainty of, you know, like if I speed in front of the policeman, I'm probably getting a ticket, you know, that yes. kind of certainty. Yeah. We, we don't have it. So I think that the point of grief, I think the point of animal chaplains, I think the point of clergy is to help people process the fact that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure that some of the stories that we've created, um, are super helpful for us about what happens. So mm-hmm. what I try to get people to do is say, what happens is this. They go to the what's next. Yeah. Now, I don't know what the what's next is. I don't know if that means they go into other bodies. I don't know if they, you know, energy goes into something else. Uh, but we're also able to hold a lot of different contradicting beliefs at the same time. Mm-hmm. So personally, and, and I talk about this in the book, because I, I have studied so many different faiths, I think that one of my cats was reincarnated as another cat. Mm -hmm. I think one of my cats is still out on walkabout. I have one cat I think might be a squirrel now. And I think my father's cat, I mean, it really does look like him. He's the same bright orange and he Mm -hmm. looks at me from the tree. You know, it sounds a little wacko, but Mm -hmm. who knows? And I think that my father's cat is with him wherever my father is. Now, those are all ways that I have come up with to to describe possibilities and to explore stories and narratives and that's that's what we do uh, so I think the important thing with grief work is you know to be able to hold the unknown and we don't do that really well as a species do we no no, no we gotta go figure it out yeah we are we are <laughs> we have to figure it out that's why like that's why I love science and and you know Angie and I always talk about that that we're very inquisitive. And uh, like before we started recording, I told you, I, through my own journey, 
I've done a lot of research in near-death experiences, past life regressions, just to find that answer why. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fasc- a big question. It's fascinating stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's also, I, I love, my favorite scientists are the ones who say to me, there's a lot we don't know. Absolutely. We know some things. There's a lot we don't know. And that's why we're passionate about our careers, because we Mm want to know. And I would say theologians and philosophers have the same drive. Everybody's driven by this, this curious mind, and I need to know. But what's also really interesting to me is that we see animals who grieve. We see Mm -hmm. animals who do rituals. One of my favorite uh, stories is of, you know, elephants, of course, everyone knows about the elephants, but the elephants will actually cover sleeping humans with brush when they're dead. Yeah. (laughs) There's been a couple instances of it. So they thought, you know, someone's sleeping on the ground and they think, oh, you know, that that guy's passed on, or I suppose this is what they're thinking. Who knows? They pick up branches and they you know, reverently stick them on top of the human who wakes up and says, what what the heck's going on here? (laughs) So that tells me that grief is not just a human experience. Mm -hmm. Grief is a universal experience. Now, what does that say about what we think about and how we treat other species? Does that change? What does that change what we think when we know that they are grieving the other members of their you know, their family or their group or the people that they're in a habitat with. That's why I just, again, this, <laughs> I was so excited to speak with you because just the philosophy of it and listening to you talk, that's one thing that in the last three plus years doing this, researching each of these species, one thing that that I've come across that has just, it was foreign to me as an animal physiologist, because we studied physiology you know, like I said, getting into the genetics and sure. the biochemistry and, and and the machinery, biological machinery was was really the gist of, of my research in science, but more diving more into animal behavior and evolution, things like that. The one thing that has knocked me on my rear end the most is when we talk about culture hmm. with animal species and really hit me with when we started talking about it with orcas and that's when I just really started thinking about it. And I was like, you're telling me they have culture and, and Angie and I really dove into that topic. And so now we're seeing that across different taxa, different species that they believe they have culture, you know, and different dialects and they, you know, there, there's certain rules that sociologists use to define culture you know, teaching. So the grandma orca will go and teach the younger orcas how to hunt the seals, the ones that beach themselves off uh, the coasts of South America, things like that. So talking about philosophy in your book, you have Descartes in there who I love. I think therefore I am. That's the only thing I really remember from philosophy class, but it's always stuck with me, you know, he said, and I'm just paraphrasing it because you had the full quote in there, but basically saying animals are complex biological machines who cannot think or feel pain. And I remember when I went into one of my classes and I, and I told my students and I asked them, I'm like, do you think animals have feelings? And they all started laughing and no. And I'm like, really? So my question to you is how has that view changed over the last 400 years? (laughs) It's changed for the better. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Thankfully. 
here's the thing, you know, we, there's so much we didn't know. There's so much we didn't know. And I think that it was necessary for us to think of them that way so that we could do what we needed to do to learn about them. So, you know, that that's a construct of, oh, they can't feel it. It was the same thing my father used to do when we, we'd have an annual lobster roast at the house. And he'd be like, oh, just tickle their tummies. They don't feel it. Just toss them in the water. And you know, yeah. now what we know about crustaceans, yeah. and it's illegal mm-hmm. in a number of countries, to mm-hmm. do what my dad used to do and teach us kids to do. So we have humans prize culture. We really do. And we prize culture because... At a certain point in our history, it's what we think elevated us above others because we have culture. Now, we did this if we want to talk about racial, we could, you know, that could be mm-hmm. a whole nother segment here of what we did there and animalizing different people and, and, and what we've done there. And so when we find out, you know, the similarity principle tells us that when we find out other species are more like us, we care about them more. We're a little bit self-serving like that. We care about them more. We can also understand more because we can touch it in some sort of way. So I think we've gone from this, they can't feel it. You know, they can't feel pain. They can't feel hurt. They don't think. Uh, They are cause and effect, you know, reaction, trained behavior, um, all of that to really understanding a lot more about empathy and cognition and, and what we don't know. I think the challenge for us is two things, getting out of the way of, you know, needing to be superior. And then the other is, you know, how do we process the results of what we learned? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like now I can't eat lobster. So, you know, what, what do we do with, with that information? So I think it's changed a lot, but I don't think our actions have. I think our beliefs no. have, but I don't think our actions have. Would what are you saying? Yeah, it, it's we have a lot of hope with the younger generation. I, I and I know there's been great work. I mean, David Attenborough, you know, who is revered, Jane Goodall. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the the older generation uh, conservationists. Diane Fossey died uh, protecting mountain gorillas. So there has been a part of that generation and and there's always been conservationists going hundreds of years, but we have a lot of hope with the younger generation, you know, these up and coming, uh, we call them conservation heroes. I've interviewed quite, quite a few of them. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm just trying to think we just recently had Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, She's a conservation hero out there in the field going, bouncing back from Africa. Um, You know, she has her own podcast on PBS, things like that. Then I go just, you know, I'm just looking at our our last interviews. We had Dr. Amanda Romo from Los Angeles. She's just a college professor that that, uh, teaches things other than animals. And she's weaved conservation into her courses, you know, to do that. And then we've, we've done a bunch of Whitley award winners, and then we've had some really outstanding rock stars, but the younger generation gives us a lot of hope. They're green. They want to change. They want climate change is finally making front page news on a daily basis. So we are optimistic and now it's just, how's this pandemic I guess that's a question. I, I, I throw this in there at you. I, did, I know I didn't put it on the list I sent you, but how has the COVID pandemic really affected animals in your work? 
So there have been some interesting studies that that have shown that people are talking more to their animals than they ever have, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is kind of fascinating. And we've seen there's one study uh, that was done with dogs and mindfulness um, tasks that they had them do as pairs during the during COVID mm-hmm. uh, to, to to kind of see what the impact would be for well being of both sides and both sides got a boost. So I think that we've seen. I think animals are more visible now, and it's very interesting. You know, a lot of churches and a lot of spiritual communities and meditation centers all went onto Zoom or other you know platforms, digital platforms, mm-hmm. and then came the cats because. <laughs> Yeah. And cats love to walk across the, you know, the keyboard yes. and, you know, Always. and all of that. But animals became more visible in some ways uh, within the communities that I work within. And that that was able to, you know, have more conversations. People are referencing, you know, they're not the absentee uh, referent anymore in a lot of conversations. And so I think that visibility improves. I think it improves with each generation, too, as access to knowledge improves. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and getting back to the younger generation, it just there there just is a big groundswell of we need to quote unquote fix the planet. And I think it's more, yeah, we need to fix some things, but we also just need to change habits. And we're seeing that slowly. I think it needs to be sped up. My own personal opinion is it needs to be sped up a little bit. But, you know, seeing the things that we're doing down here in New Zealand. I really wish the United States and, and Europe would embrace quicker, you know, with well, the, there's the a why behind plastics. That. Yeah. yeah, there's a yeah. why behind that too that I think is interesting. Why do we need to save the planet? Yeah. Are we saving the planet so it will sustain humans and more humans exactly. and more and yeah. more and more humans? Or I think one of my pet peeves is, you know, the word nature or or saying earth or when we when we generalize in these large terms that don't include the specificity of who's in that habitat. So one of the things I've been trying to do in my work is people will say, oh, I love nature spirituality. And I'll say, who did you see? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who did you see on your hike? Um, you know, who who did you hear? Who, who are you aware of when you're out doing whatever it is that you're doing, your mindfulness or your meditation? Can we get some specificity to it rather than I just love nature, it makes me feel good? And understand that maybe it's the connections that we're having with different with different beings. Well, let's let's explore that a little bit. Let's get back a little bit more to the the spirituality aspect because uh, that you did talk about that in your book too. Again, sacred send offs. I I definitely highly highly recommend it, especially when you want to look at connecting nature and spirituality. But I I got that in your book and and two things clicked with me when you said that. One, I feel better when I go out in nature and. I can't agree with that with you more, especially during the pandemic. You know, I've, I've been locked down in three different countries, the United States, the UK, and now New Zealand. It's driving me batty. You know, I'm not in lockdown today, but, you know, I miss walking in the woods and I touch trees. I go up and meditate and I physically touch the trees and I feel better because there's a little bit of science behind that physiology. There behind There's a that. lot of science now behind it. Yes. That. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. What is it about nature that is making us feel better or what you have found? So I think going back to some of your conversation earlier, I think there's an exchange that happens. I, and I think we're seeing that in, in, in the 
scientific literature as well that there's this exchange that's happening um, of energy of different um, di- I think different ways of being as well. So I think we get something from trees that we don't get from the frenetic other people in our home running around like crazy. Like there's a there's a solidness, there's a groundedness, there's a um, there's a different way of being uh, that's not a human way of being. And, uh, you know, that kind of that, that umwelt, right. Of, of what is it like to be a tree? And so I think that's one piece of it. Uh, I think the other thing is that, you know, when we're out of our houses, we have, we have more air, we're moving our bodies, right. So some, some of that kind of stuff too. One of my favorite studies said that just looking at the color green for 60 seconds can relax us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, promptly painted all of my office walls green. The smart. And I'm not sure that <laughs> yes. it has the same thing, you know, yeah, that I open yeah. the door and it's different. So so mm-hmm, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, spirituality is a, is a name that we give to that. Right. Well, it, 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 it just, you know, a lot of us have been locked down around the world and, and have not had that connection. For some people, it's, you know, growing up in California, the beach and the ocean, you know, we know, you know, scientific literature has shown being in the ocean, being in salt water, breathing the salt air, all gives us health benefits. So, but there's, there's an interesting a, thing. Yeah, I'm going to cut you right there because yeah, something please. very interesting went, just happened. So we went from a feeling mm-hmm. straight into our heads to figure out why it happened. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and do. and I do we the do. same thing too. Like I've got we this do. report. Let me send you a footnote. Oh my god, did yeah. you read this? And so. One of the things that that does is kind of overtaxes our thinking brains and keeps them going and going and going mm-hmm. and going and going. And so that's why I think we have these different languages. So yeah. we have the language of science that tells us one thing, but there's a different way of experiencing something. If I sit on the beach and say, wow, I feel relaxed, mm-hmm. I feel good. Maybe I'm just going to try to watch the passing clouds go by, not have any thoughts, check out the birds, you know, what's going on. There's That's one experience. And the other experience is where your head just went, which is explaining exactly why everything happened in that moment. And so in meditation and mindfulness, what we're going to try to do is say, thank you. Yes, I know the brilliant science. Can you take off for just a minute so that I can breathe a little deeper and relax? And both are super important. Both, I think, are, are trying to get to a state of get us to a state of well-being and understanding. So I don't want to negate, I don't want to pit them against each other. I want to see them as two different ways of viewing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is finding that stillness. And I know in meditation, you learn that and and to quiet that brain and, and especially, yeah. you know, I think it was in your book, you said 70,000 thoughts a, a day or something. A day, 60 a day, to 70,000 yeah. thoughts a day. And so we filter them. Yeah. We necessarily right. filter them. And then we go running after some of the ones that aren't the ones we should go running after. Exactly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, yes, yes, yes. So these these kind of time-honored tools of how to have self-management mm-hmm. is these practices. There's a Zen saying I love, which is um, enlightenment is an accident, but practice makes you accident-prone. Yes, yes. So, yes. you know, if we can if we can learn some of these things and I think so let's go back to animals. Let's go back to interspecies. Mm-hmm. I was talking to someone the other day about I love to watch birds on wires. Yes. 
That's funny. Right? They're just sitting there. And then for a moment, all of a sudden, they all kind of get up and they flutter around and they come back and they land in another another constellation. And then they get up and then four move and then three move. And then I wonder, oh, did somebody do something or what? You know, and then my thinking mind engages. But before my thinking mind engages, there's this, wow, look at the beauty. Look at the beauty of that and, and how that feels. Now, let's go back 400 years. And the idea would be, oh, they're just sitting waiting for food to appear. But they're not. Not, no. Not, no. not, not. There's something no. else going on there. So I think from an interspecies spirituality perspective, what we're talking about is wonder and awe and beauty. And yeah, maybe we run home and, and we jump on the internet to figure out something about it, or we come listen to the All Creatures podcast to find out why that species does what they do. But that there is some benefit to just having that moment of awe. Well, it's funny. I was going to ask you about birds. It's one of the things I've I've got into in New Zealand is because you know obviously we're we're mostly birds. Uh, the only native mammals we have are bats. All the rest are introduced. So I've got into birding, and when I go used to go for walks and out in nature, I never really paid attention to the birds. But now, when you get into that mindfulness and that spiritual connection my ears are on, my eyes are up and it's just, it's serene. All the birds that are, that are chirping and talking. Yeah. And, and you breathe slower. Yes, it is. And, yeah. It, and you it sink into yeah. it. I think I, this is interesting. So birds were kind of last for me too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and about, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, I started really getting into birds. And it helped that I got uh, an app. There's a BirdNet app from Cornell that's like Shazam yeah. for birds. I, I, I push it all the time, eBird. I push I it just, all the time. I just love it. So then, yes. I could, then I could find out, okay, who are you? And, and you know, and give you yes. a name and, and, and be able to say like, oh, hello, so-and-so. Um, but there's something uh, – I, I – no, there has been some literature, and I, someone will have to go find it after listening to this and you know write in and tell you what it is, but about the effect of different tones of birds on us. Mm, and mm. so we're looking at, you know, what is the effect of the different vocalizations? Not like birds are doing it for us, right? But right, right, right. <laughs> we right. always want to turn it back to being human-centric. What's the benefit for me? Mm -hmm, uh, but mm -hmm. there is something about birds. I think the other thing that I'm noticing, if we look at the percentage of um creatures on the planet, there's a much higher percentage of free ones that are birds. Yes. Yeah. No, they're amazing. They're, 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 they're also, amazing. they're also a, um, they're also, the, you know, chickens, I believe are the one is the species that we have the most of in captivity. Too. Yeah. So, yeah. you yeah. know, so we're both and on this one. Um, but I think that the birds fare a little better from our cars. You see less birds that get hit by cars. Here, here's an interesting fact I have to throw in before we run out of time. because uh, And I don't know where we are on time, but I just got to get this one in. Yeah. Uh, I told you I loved roadkill. Well, I don't love roadkill, but you understand what I mean. Mm, you are, um, yeah. There, according to the statistics that I have, we have 400 million animals in the U.S. alone are killed each year. Hmm. That's a million, a, over hmm. a million a day in the U.S. alone. And I know people yeah. are listening from all over, are because of roads. Yeah. So if we want to talk about one of the things that, that one of the greatest things that we can do is slow down and stick that phone in the back seat 
yeah, because yeah, we need exactly. to have the time to that. That is a preventable. That is a very, very preventable loss that we can do. And in the U.S. here, we we lose. I think it's it's about a thousand people a day, a million animals. So yeah. I think birds fare a little better because they're out of the way of our cars too. But I Mostly, don't know. Yeah, someone yeah, someone yeah. would have to prove that for me. Well, yeah, they're the birds in the U.S. Their population is is. I I guess that that will lead me to a couple of my final questions, and I'm gonna have to have you back on so are you i hope you're writing another book or i'll read some of your blogs or something absolutely in in that vein and i and the interesting thing is i haven't asked this question in quite a while for my guests but i used to ask it every time and just a quick background on it was i was in a a faculty uh conference it was all of us scientists sharing uh thoughts ideas we that's what we do in science sure and my graduate student had stood up and given a talk on animal conservation. And one of the scientists in there who is a world renowned reproductive physiologist, I, I, I love him to death. I respect him highly, but I had a major disagreement with him and that's healthy in science. That's what we do. And he asked us, do we have a moral responsibility to save endangered species? He, he was arguing that we don't, that we're the dominant species it's natural selection at work. It's Darwinism. You know, if they were meant to survive, they would. And I was very taken back. And I was like, we're in the Anthropocene. We are causing these extinctions. And we absolutely have a moral responsibility for that. So there's the background on it. And, and by far, I mean, I've had some amazing, amazing responses uh, from, from this question. But you're the perfect guest for this question. So, <laughs> do we do we as 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 a species, human beings, do we have a moral responsibility to care and preserve nature, our wild spaces? So you know, moral is a word that we have attached to to religion and to Christianity a bit. You know, mm-hmm. we use ethics if we don't want to have that religious you know connotation. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I'm going to say that I don't know, and I'm going to, and this is, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, I I just came back from the Galapagos, and which changed which changed me in so many different ways. Okay, but here was one of the things that came up for me. So you know, I. You can hear, I, I just, I'm, I'm a lover. I, I, I love my critters. I love the animals. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to save everybody. I want to save everybody. And yet I know that I can't save everybody because when you save one, you lose another. And having mm-hmm. cats in my home means that, you know, things happen to chickens so the cats can be fed. And it's just a mess. The morals and the ethics of where we are right now are a mess. I do not think that we are the dominant species. I think we are a dominating species right now, but I do not think there is some sort of God-given, we're supposed to, you know, use everything however we want to kind of Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm. Let's be very clear about that. So I think it's a case-by-case basis. And when I was in Galapagos, um, there was a story of – Oh, I'm going to forget his name, and this is a problem. I think it's Fernando 
or there, there's a George, or maybe it's George. There was a turtle, and there was one one of the the large the large tortoises who was left, and they were very. I believe very it was ex- George. Yeah, was it, it was George? George? I think it was George. Yeah. So I heard the story of George and how exciting it was that George had been the last of his kind, and then had had brought had been able to bring back his species. Now. I did want to mention that no one said anything about the women who might have been involved in this process. <laughs> I guess not women, but the female, the female Females, turtles yeah. who, who might have been involved in that process along with George. And so I kind of chalked that up to, hmm, that's interesting. Um, but I started to think myself of, do I want to be the last of my species? And that was a question that changed me a lot. I don't know. Um, in some ways, I would because I got squirrels and cats and other folks, and in other ways, it would be quite lonely. So that is not an answer. Um, but what I think it speaks to is is the confusion about what our responsibility is. So what I do practically is I take it case by case by case. I try not to do overarching, sweeping mandates of what our moral responsibility is and what I say is you know, what do I do in this situation after weighing the benefits, the pros and the cons for everyone who's involved? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. It's very interesting to to, to get all the different opinions uh, of that question because it it's a big one. It's a big yeah. one. And you're most, right, ethics and yeah. Most religions will tell you that we have a moral responsibility. Okay? Yes. But- what that looks like in practice and who that goes to mm-hmm. is going to differ by adherent. Mm-hmm. And you're going to come back to this golden rule. And does the golden rule include only humans or does it include, you know, we find it in every tradition, has right. different words, right. but we find it everywhere. So I love conservationists. I love the the work that everyone is doing to uh, to try to make a difference and to try to preserve and to save and all of that. So I'm not knocking that at all. Uh, but I'm just saying it's really confusing. Yeah, it's a complex. It's it's yeah. the one thing I've learned the last three years is is conservation is very very complex and uh, it, it differs by region, your own backyard. So, and I think this is a key for me of you know it's an area that I am undereducated in. So so it's an area and it's a really great. Um, this is a great invitation to me, just to, just as we're asking the folks on the podcast to perhaps consider some of the things that I've brought in terms of spirituality. It's a mirror back to me to to learn a lot more about some of the challenges that are facing people who are in conservation and how can I support them? Right, right. Well, I to be honest, we barely scratch the surface on this and this topic. I, uh, I'm going to talk to Angie. Maybe we can have you back or like you can talk to Angie and, and get her take on it. It, it. It's fascinating. It's a different aspect of, you know, animals and conservation and, and, and just really our place in the universe. You know, one of the things that has always blown my mind is I, I ran across it on, on YouTube many years ago. It was the most important image ever taken, and it was the Hubble Deep Field where they, and I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast ever, but they they zoom in on a postage stamp size of the sky and let the Hubble telescope sit there for 10, I think it was 10 days or 16 days and gather that distant, distant light. And then they blew up the picture and there was thousands of galaxies, which have billions of stars in each galaxy, you know, hundreds of billions of stars. It's mind blowing, isn't it? 
it just <laughs> changes your perspective yeah. on everything. Yeah. So again, we've barely scratched the surface on this, but your book is is wonderful. It mentions a lot of these topics and, you know, different religions, different beliefs. It just it was such a pleasure to read. And that sacred send-offs, where can our listeners find the book? Yeah, so you can find it pretty much anywhere that you buy books online now. It's in pre-order. It will uh, ship out to everyone April 5th. Uh, at my website also, which is sacredsendoffs.com, there's more information about the book. There's more information about workshops. Um, for anyone who's gotten kind of interested here in, ooh, I want a, a even deeper dive, uh, Compassion Consortium, we're launching a six-month uh, study program in September. So if anyone wants to come and kind of learn about this and ask really, really messy questions and get into some, some of those kind of debates and um, see what we can figure out. Uh, we're going to be doing that as well. And the book tour information will be up there shortly too. So sacredsendoffs.com. And it has links to some of the you know popular books. I'm in the US, so, mm -hmm. so some of the bookstores here. Uh, but it's uh, widely available internationally as well. Amazing. And yeah, maybe when you do that consortium, that'd be a good time to, to touch base with you again. And do you have any uh, social media you'd like to promote? Yep. Sacred Sendoffs uh, for Instagram and for Facebook. And uh, just starting on Twitter, I have a love-hate oh, relationship yeah, yeah, with yeah, Twitter, okay. but oh, people yeah, follow just, it. Just, get, just getting involved in that. And I love to have these kind of conversations and, and learn from people because the world is an endlessly fascinating place. And having more information and more views and more tools for dealing with our heartbreak uh, and dealing with our wonder and excitement and our curiosity, like you said, our, our endless desire to solve everything. Oh, Sarah, it was such a pleasure. Animal Chaplain, Sarah Bowen. I, uh, I've i got it. You know, I, I know Angie always says that we got to keep the conversation going. I have to, yeah, I have to touch base with you again. That's this was a deal. Fascinating. That's it was a, so fascinating. Absolutely a deal. And just, you know, it, the book really touched me. You've really touched me. And, and again, you know, it's amazing. So thank you so much for what you do. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. And thank everyone listening for everything that you do.